You're listening to audio from Cities Church. You can find more resources and learn about our ministry by visiting citieschurch.com. The, the book of Genesis is a strange book. We, we just heard the first 12 verses read of Genesis chapter 34, and in case you've not yet read ahead, the rest of this chapter only gets worse. In fact, um, from here in chapter 34 all the way to chapter 39, we find the darkest section in the book of Genesis overall. And so if you think it has been strange already, just wait over the next month here. This is a strange book, and that should not really surprise us because hopefully by now we know what Genesis is all about. The book of Genesis is a book that tells the story of a God beyond our understanding who carries out his purposes among a people who are extremely broken and sinful. And so when you have a God who is self-determining, who depends on nothing for his being, but who instead has all things dependent upon himself, when you have a God who speaks the universe into existence with words and who governs every event toward the completion of his will, when you have a God like that ruling over people like us, it can get strange. And that's what we're dealing with here tonight in Genesis chapter 34. And what I would like to do for this sermon is a little different from usual. What I want to do is I want us to take a step back and I want us to be a little more cautious about the approach that we take to chapters like this in the Bible. Um, this is not the last difficult chapter we find in Genesis or in the Bible. And so how should we come to chapters like this? How should we approach these difficult chapters? How should we read in the Bible, a chapter like Genesis 34, and I think there basically are three things that we do. And I think these three things apply to every difficult passage in the Bible. And I'm going to just list them for you here and explain just a little bit. When we come to difficult passages, we do these three things. Number one, we need to understand the context. The first thing we want to do when we find a passage like chapter 34 is we we, we want to look around at where this passage stands in light of the Bible's storyline. We want to check out the surrounding chapters. We want to check out the surrounding books. And we just want to try to get a panorama on where the passage is in the Bible. The second thing to do is we want to listen to the passage. And so that starts with trying to find out what's the genre of the passage. And when it comes to the book of Genesis, we're dealing with a narrative. And so we need to pay attention to the elements of this story. We want to look closely at the details, which means we're looking closely at the people, the places, the things. We're looking closely for repeated words. We're looking closely for allusions. All the details in the story matter. And so we want to look for those. The third thing we do is we want to mine for the message because every passage in the Bible has a message. The Bible is the word of God, and the Bible is always a word about God and his realness. There's always something for us to learn in every passage of the Bible, but sometimes it's not so obvious, which means we have to dig, we have to mine for the message. What are the major themes happening here? What are the minor themes happening here? What are the important truths that we see in these verses? We have to mine for the message. Those three things are, I think, the three things we do when we come to difficult passages in the Bible. Number one, understand context. Number two, listen to the passage. And number three, mind for the message. And those three things are basically the outline 
that we're going to take for tonight's sermon. And so let's go ahead and pray, and then we're going to get, get started together. So, Father, uh, thank you. Thank you that you are the God of great wisdom and love, which means that in this moment right now, you, you know what we need before we ask it. And you delight to provide us what we need through our asking. And so right now, Father, we are asking, would you please feed us with your word? By your spirit, speak to our souls tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so first we're going to understand the context. The first thing we want to do in Genesis 34 is to get a grasp on where we are in the story of Genesis. You'll remember two weeks ago that Jacob and his family have left Haran after 20 years, and they are on their way back to the land of Canaan. Then we saw in chapter 33 that Jacob surprisingly has this positive reunion with Esau. And then in verse 18 in chapter 33, we see that Jacob arrived in the city of Shechem, which is in Canaan, and he camps right outside the city. This is chapter 33. And we're told in chapter 33 that Jacob arrived in Shechem safely, which means after all that Jacob has been through, after all that he has put up with, finally he can relax, which doesn't last very long. It's important how chapter 33, which we saw last week, it's important how this ends because we're told in verse 19 that Jacob buys land in Shechem from the sons of Hamor, who is Shechem's father. So let me just explain how this works. Shechem is the name of this city here and is also the name of Hamor's favorite son. So the chapter tells us that Shechem the son was the prince of Shechem the city. And Shechem is introduced right before we get to chapter 34 because in this story of chapter 34, Shechem is the central character on the Canaanite side. Now, when it comes to Jacob's side, Jacob actually doesn't do much in chapter 34. Jacob is passive and quiet. And instead, what we see for the first time is we see the sons of Jacob emerge. Over and over again in chapter 34, we see the phrase, sons, the sons of Jacob, which means there's a transitioning happening in the book of Genesis overall. Jacob is starting to move back, and the sons of Jacob are now taking the stage. And it does not go well. In chapter 34, all of Jacob's sons are guilty of deceit and violence starting with Simeon and Levi. In chapter 35, Jacob's son Reuben sleeps with Jacob's, Jacob's concubine. In chapter 37, all of Jacob's sons sell their brother Joseph into slavery. In chapter 38, Jacob's son Judah sleeps with his son's widow. And so just for context here, in chapter 34, here in chapter 34, we are beginning to walk into an intense moral decline among God's covenant people. Which makes, what this means is that God's purposes for his covenant people become extremely volatile and vulnerable. That's what's happening in chapters 34 to 39. Things get really tense here. 
That's the context, all right? That's where we jump into the story. So now the second thing, we want to listen to the passage. We want to follow what's happening here in the story. And I think in this story, there are basically four scenes or four acts of what's taking place. And every act is actually signaled by the word went out. You'll see that phrase show up at least four times in the passage, went out. Just that one word, went out. Two words in English. Notice verse 1, for example. If you can see, it's a little dark in here. If you can see your Bible or your phone. If you can see it, verse 1. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had born to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. So that, that, that same word, went out, is used in verse 6. Verse 24 and verse 26. And every time that word shows up, it is used as a technique to move the story along, which means when that word shows up, it just drags in more drama. That's what's happening. It's just compounding the plot. And so watch how this goes. Okay, I'm going to go really fast through the four acts. Okay, so just hold on tight. All right, here's act one. So Dinah went out to see the women of the land. And we don't know exactly what that means, but we know that she was out and she was vulnerable because Shechem, the prince of Shechem, sees her and he violates her and he wants to marry her. And so he tells his father Hamor to get Dinah for him as a wife. And meanwhile, while that's happening, word gets back to Jacob that Shechem has violated his daughter. And we're told in verse 5 that Jacob doesn't do anything. Act 2. Hamor taking orders from his son, went out to meet with Jacob, and he tried to make a marriage deal. And meanwhile, while that's happening, as this meeting is happening with Jacob, the sons of Jacob find out what Shechem has done, and this is verse 7. The sons of Jacob had come in from the field as soon as they heard of it, and the men were indignant and very angry because he had done this outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, for such a thing must not be done. So these, these brothers are livid. They are angry, not just because this was their sister, but they see this as an attack on their entire family. This is the first time in Genesis that the name Israel is used to refer to a whole people. So in chapter 34, we begin to see this corporate identity this attack by Shechem of Dinah is viewed as an attack by the Hivites on Israel, the people. And so these brothers are angry, but the sons of Jacob hide their anger from Hamor, and instead they deceive them. See, Hamor, he doesn't just want Shechem to marry Dinah, but he wants everyone in their families to marry one another. Hamor says in verse 9, Make marriage with us, give your daughters to us, and take our daughters for yourselves. And Hamor is desperate to make this deal. And so he says, we'll do whatever we have to do. We want to make this deal. And so the sons of Jacob hear that, and they say, hmm, okay. They get deceptive. They say, all right, we'll, we'll make this marriage deal with you. We'll, we'll make this deal, but on one condition. Every male in Shechem, the city, has to be circumcised. And Hamor and Shechem agree to this deal. Sounds good to them. But now they have to go back to the city of Shechem, and they have to convince all the other men to go through with this. And so they go back to the city, 
and they tell all the men the terms of this deal. And basically, this is what they say. They say, okay, look, the sons of Jacob are going to become one people with us. Hamor says in verse 23 that everything that belongs, this is what he's saying to the men of Shechem. Everything, he says, everything that belongs to Jacob is going to become ours. You just have to be circumcised. Act 3, verse 24 says that all who went out of the gate of his city listened to Hamor and his son Shechem, and every male was circumcised who went out of the gate of his city. And so Hamor, they, 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 this is, they convince all the guides to be circumcised. And so all the men were circumcised. And then on the third day, with no pain medication, there's not, no modern medicine here, okay? The third day, in verse 25, while they were sore and while the city felt secure, Simeon and Levi, the two sons of Jacob, went inside the city and they murdered every man, including Hamor and Shechem. Act 4. After Simeon and Levi killed Hamor and Shechem, they took Dinah and they went out of the city. And then in verse 27, we read that after they go out of the city, all the sons of Jacob go back into the city, a city that was full of men slain in the streets and slain in their homes. They go back into this city and they plunder it of everything left. They took their livestock, they took all their wealth, and they took their children and their wives. The sons of Jacob took it all. And then finally, in verse 30, Jacob speaks up and he rebukes Simeon and Levi because they have caused trouble. They are going to cause Jacob's family to get a bad reputation in the land, which is dangerous because Jacob's family is smaller than everybody else, which means that when the other Canaanites find out what they've done, they're going to come and destroy the family of Jacob, which means Jacob rebukes Simeon and Levi here because of their diplomacy. And then they reply in verse 3, that Shechem can't be allowed to treat their sister the way he did. They get the last word. The chapter ends, and there you have the story. I was assigned this text months ago. <laughs> did not choose this. This is, a, this is a dark and troubling story. And I want to be very, very clear, okay, about this. There is nothing in this story that is commendable. There is no bright spot. Everything is horrible in this chapter, and I do not like Genesis chapter 34. And yet, this is the Word of God. And we know that God has something for us in his word, and so now we want to slow down and we want to, by God's grace, Holy Spirit help us. We want to mine for the message. What can we learn about God in this story? This is the third and final thing here. We're going to mine for the message, and this is when we begin to connect the context 
of this story and the details of this story. These things start to come together for us. And I think when they do, there are two important things we learn in chapter 34. One is an important allusion that we see elsewhere in the Bible. And then the other is the main theme, I think, of this particular story. I want to slow down and look at both. I want to start with the first one here. And this is the first thing we learn. We learn that sin is always the same. Sin is always the same. Look at verse 2 for a minute. Remember, Dinah went out to see the women of the land, which means she is out and about, she's walking around. And then in verse 2 we read, And when Shechem the son of Hamor, the prince of the land, saw her, he seized her and lay with her and humiliated her. So there are four verbs that show us the downward spiral of this situation. You see it right here in the verse. Saw, seize, lay, humiliate. The writer does not waste any time in telling us what's happening here. This is a horrible, horrible thing. And what's interesting about verse 2 is that the first two verbs here should already give it away for us that this is going to be bad. Shechem saw, and then he seized. And the word seized is the same Hebrew word for took. So right away in verse 2, we see that Shechem saw, and he took. He saw, and he took. And this is not the first time we have seen this combination of words in the book of Genesis. Saw and took. Can you think of another time we see those two words? I'm going to read it for you. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. Genesis chapter 3, verse 6. It's the exact same Hebrew words, saw and took. Chapter 34 is not the first time we see those two words. It's not the last time either. You don't, you don't have to turn with me here, but think for a minute about the life of King David in 2 Samuel. In 2 Samuel chapter 11, this is the story of King David and Bathsheba. By the time we get to chapter 11 of 2 Samuel, things have been going really well for King David. He had experienced success as a king. Um, but in chapter 11, it's springtime. And we see at the beginning of chapter 11 in 2 Samuel that as all the other men were out at battle, David had stayed back. And David was on the roof of his house. And we read in 2 Samuel chapter 11 that David saw Bathsheba and then he took her. It's the same two Hebrew words again. Saw and took. Which means there's something here we need to know about sin. There's a lesson for us here when it comes to sin. Going back to the very first sin and then in the sin of Shechem and then also with the sin of David and then up to this very day, the essence of sin has not changed. Sin is basically the seizing, the taking of a legitimate good at times or in ways that God has forbidden. 
And if you can remember way back two years ago when Pastor Joe preached and explained to us Genesis 3, that's the way that he defines sin in Genesis 3. It still applies here in Genesis 34. The text tells us several times in chapter 34 that Shechem really liked Dinah. He loved Dinah. Shechem, he, he spoke tenderly to Dinah. He longed for Dinah. And that's all fine and good. That's okay. The problem is not Shechem's attraction to Dinah. The problem is that Shechem ignored the boundaries that God had put in place and he seized what he wanted on his terms. Shechem acted as if the whole world belonged to him. He acted as if he can have whatever he wanted anytime and in any way, and that is always the lie of sin. That, that always is the lie of sin. Sin starts with what we believe about reality. Every time we are tempted to sin, no matter how big, no matter how small, we are tempted to believe the lie that the universe is all about me. That's the temptation. The universe exists for me. And what God says doesn't really matter because I will have what I want no matter what. Sin is grabbing for our desires apart from God in rejection of God because we think we are God. It's always the same. Sin has always been the same. And this is one reason among so many reasons why I don't want us to sin. I don't want us to live in sin. Sin believes lies about God and sin spreads lies about God and we don't want to do that. Okay? Also, the best way to fight sin is to not merely be on the defensive against the lies, but we have to go on the offensive with truth. Okay? This is just a little practical this is a little tangent, okay, from the sermon here. I've been thinking a lot about high schoolers. we got some high schoolers in here. We don't have a ton of high schoolers at our church, but we have a few. And I just want to say, if you're here and you are a teenager and you're in high school, look, I want you to know I see you. I appreciate you. I respect you. I'm glad that you are here. And one day, one day in this church, we're going to have tons of high schoolers because all of our little kids are going to grow up, and this place is going to be packed with teenagers, God willing, and we got to get ready for that. We got to. There's a lot of look. Look, we the pastor. We were talking a few weeks ago, and I I, I kind of freaked out about this, thinking about you know what, how how soon that's going to be. We got to get ready for. There's the, lots of discipleship needs to happen now and then. Okay, now and and then and. So as I'm thinking about that, as I'm thinking about like, as I'm thinking about youth and students and high schoolers and our kids and where we are as a church, look, how are we going to teach Genesis 34? In our cultural moment, okay, you got to hear what I'm saying here. In our cultural moment, we got kids who need to know truth. How are we going to teach the truth of Genesis 34? And one way to do it is just to say the obvious. Shechem is evil, and what he does is evil. Do not be like Shechem. 
That is the defensive against the lies. And we should say that, all right? We, we should say that. But then also, the Bible gives us so much more. We have a whole book of truth. We have a whole vision for this world and God's design and God's gifts to us. And we want our children to know the truth of what God has made, what God has done, God's design for it all. We want to know the truth. We need to know the truth. And so when it comes to the evil of Shechem here in Genesis 34, I'm thinking about my own sons. Our sons will learn not to be evil like Shechem, not just by knowing the lies to reject, but by also knowing the truths to embrace. That's important. Humans are people. We are created in the image of God, which means that every single individual, every man and every woman has dignity and worth. And God gave us marriage. He gave us humans marriage as a gift. And he gave us sex as a gift. He gave us all these things he has given us because he is a good God. These are good and holy things. These are truths. There are truths in the Bible that we must embrace and we must celebrate. And we have to say those things. We have to know those things. It's not just that we're trying to reject the lies. We want to embrace the truth. So I want us to talk about the truth. Sin has always been the same. We see that in Genesis 34. But that's not who we are, church. We have the truth. All right, here's the second thing we learn, and I think this is the main theme. That was like part point of the passage, part kind of like tangent. This is actually all in the passage here. Um, this is the main theme, I think, of Genesis 34. Here's how I'm going to say it. God's purposes will not be overthrown. That's the main thing, thing we need to see in Genesis 34. This is where the context and the details really connect and matter. Remember back at the end of chapter 33, before we even get into the story of Genesis 34, we read that Jacob camps in Shechem and that he buys land. Jacob buys land from the sons of Hamor. Then in chapter 34, verse 6, we read that Hamor went out to meet with Jacob about their two families marrying one another. This is an important verse. Verse 9 is important. Hamor says, give your daughters to us and take our daughters for yourselves. And the reason Hamor would propose a deal like this is because he and Jacob have already been making deals about the land. Jacob came into Shechem, he came into the land of Canaan, and he started making deals with the Canaanites. And so Hamor thinks, we've already made this land deal, now let's make a marriage deal. And again, this marriage deal is not just about one couple, but Hamor wants both of their families to intermarry. And, and that, that, that detail is very clear in the text. Now, according to the context... 
What has the book of Genesis told us so far about the family of Abraham marrying Canaanites? When it comes to this topic, the topic here of the family of Abraham joining in marriage with the Canaanites, what do we know from Genesis so far? Well, Abraham told Isaac back in Genesis 24, do not marry a Canaanite. Isaac told Jacob back in Genesis 28, do not marry a Canaanite. The only person who has married a Canaanite was Esau, and we know that didn't go well. He made life bitter for Rebekah. So going all the way back to granddaddy Abraham, it is not good to marry a Canaanite. And the reason why is because the Canaanites worship false gods. And if we intermarry, if the family of Jacob intermarries with the Canaanites, the Canaanites will lead them astray from the one true God. And so do not do it. Do not marry any Canaanites. So says Genesis. And now, when we get to chapter 34, it's Jacob's turn to pass down that command to his sons. And so as readers of Genesis, we've seen what Abraham says to his son Isaac. We've seen what Isaac said to his son Jacob. Now, what will Jacob say to his sons? We're kind of on the edge of our seats, waiting for Jacob to do what we all know he's supposed to do. But Jacob, he doesn't do anything. As far as we can tell in chapter 34, Jacob is into making deals with the Canaanites. And by verse 6, they are moving toward this marriage deal. And the outcome of this marriage deal is that the sons of Jacob and these Canaanites become one people. And that phrase, one people, is used twice in verse 16 and in verse 22, which means it's not that these Canaanites are going to become part of Jacob's family, but it's that Jacob's family were going to become Canaanites because Jacob had the smaller family, verse 30 tells us. So the sons of Jacob, the family of Jacob, were not going to, to absorb another people, but they were going to be absorbed by another people. Which is why Hamor says in verse 23 to the men of Shechem, all that belongs to the sons of Jacob is going to become ours. We are going to become one people. And just for a little heads up, the last time that phrase one people was used was back in Genesis 11 at the Tower of Babel. So this is not good. This potential marriage deal with the Canaanites is not good. For the family of Abraham to become one people with the Canaanites was for the family of Abraham to become no people at all. This deal, this marriage deal, would have meant the complete erosion of God's covenant people, which means we're not just talking about a threat against the people of Israel, but we are talking about a threat against God's plan to save the world. Ultimately, this marriage deal was an attack against God's purpose to send his Messiah and to bless the nations. And so, therefore, God does not let this deal happen. And the way that God does not let this marriage deal happen is through the dark vengeance and deception of Simeon and Levi. The reason 
that the daughters of Jacob cannot marry the sons of Shechem is because Simeon and Levi killed all the sons of Shechem. And the Bible is clear that this is not okay. This is evil. In fact, at the very end of Genesis, in chapter 49, this is like Jacob's farewell blessing on his sons. He starts with Simeon and Levi, and instead of blessing them, he actually curses them because of what they have done here in chapter 34. This was evil. So here's what we know. We know, number one, that Simeon and Levi's actions are evil. Number two, we know that Simeon and Levi's actions prohibit assimilation with the Canaanites, which means they overcome the threat against God's people, which is good. So there is evil here that somehow results in ultimate good, and it happens in a chapter that makes no mention of God. God we read nothing of God in chapter. He is not mentioned. God is not mentioned in Genesis 34. And so what do we do with this? This is deep water, okay? This is deep water. And I'm going to try to summarize it. And I'm going to try one, I'm going to try one sentence, okay? I think this one sentence, this is, I think, the main theme of Genesis 34. It goes like this. God's purposes will not be overthrown even when the circumstances involve human sin and even when it feels like God is not there. God's purposes will not be overthrown even when the circumstances involve human sin and even when it feels like God is not there. God's purpose... We know in the Bible, God's purpose is our everlasting joy. He wants the everlasting joy of his people. God's purpose is that his people from all nations be blessed, not cursed. And that purpose will not be derailed by extremely broken and sinful people. In fact, even when it seems like it is, even in the darkest moments of human sin, even when it seems like God is nowhere in sight, even there, the purposes of God will not be overthrown. And we know this. We know this because there was another moment in history much worse than Genesis 34. It was a moment when human sin was its most atrocious and when God seemed most absent. It was the moment when the Savior of the world was brutally murdered. It was when the Savior of the world was nailed to a cross at the hands of sinful men bearing the punishment 
for sinful men. And in his dying breath, he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In the midst of all that evil, the most atrocious evil ever to be done in the history of the world. In that moment, Jesus said, God, where are you? And then he died. And then that was it. It was silent. Day one, silent. Day two, silent. And then day three, the God, the God beyond our understanding who carries out his purposes among a people who are extremely broken and sinful, this God gave us resurrection. Even sin and death will not overthrow his purposes, but instead he overthrew sin and death. Jesus in the cross, in this moment, the greatest evil committed by man, where God seemed most absent, in that moment Jesus conquered. Jesus overcame the greatest threat against our souls. And now in Jesus, in him, in his resurrection life, living by faith in his resurrection power, we are blessed forever. And that's what brings us to the table. Each week we come to this table and we come to this table in faith and in joy that the Jesus who died for us is the Jesus who is risen from the dead. We come to this table in gratitude that God's purposes are for our good and that God's purposes for our good have not been overthrown and will never be overthrown. And in fact, in Christ, we are more than conquerors. That's the promise we have in the gospel. In Jesus, we more than conquer every attack, every enemy, every threat against our souls. And so if you are here tonight and you trust in Jesus, that is true of you. That is true of you. You are blessed forever in Christ. You are more than a conqueror in Christ. And so if that's you, I invite you. If you trust in Jesus, I invite you to eat and drink with us at this table. We're going to serve the bread first. And uh, just hold on to it. I'll come back up and we'll eat it all together. Uh, it is the body of Jesus that is the true bread. So let us serve you.